section thirty seven of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume one by george lily craik chapter four part thirteen classical learning many of these colleges and schools were expressly established for the cultivation of the newly revived classical learning the resurrection of which in the middle of the fifteenth century revolutionized the ancient studies everywhere as soon as its influence came to be felt it scarcely reached england however as we have already intimated till towards the close of that century indeed greek is said to have been first publicly taught in this country in st paul's school by the famous grammarian william lilly who had studied the language at rhodes and who was appointed the first master of the new school in fifteen twelve dean collet himself the founder although accounted one of the best educated men of his time had during the seven years he spent at magdalen college oxford only acquired a knowledge of some of the greek authors through the medium of latin translations among the most distinguished of the early patrons of the new learning after it had been thus introduced were the two prelates and statesmen fox and his greater protege and successor wolsey both of whom in the colleges founded by them that have just been mentioned made a special provision for the teaching of the two classic tongues the professor of latin or of humanity as he is designated in corpus christi college was expressly enjoined to extirpate barbarism from the new society barbarium a nostro auviario extirpate the greek professor was ordered to explain the best greek classics and the poets historians and orators in that language observes wharton which the judicious founder who seems to have consulted the most intelligent scholars of the times recommends by name on this occasion are the purest and such as are most esteemed even in the present improved state of ancient learning wolsey evinced the interest he took in the new studies not only by his great school at ipswich and his college at oxford but by founding in that university some years before along with various other professorships one for rhetoric and humanity and another for greek so attached was wolsey says the writer we have just quoted to the new modes of instruction that he did not think it inconsistent with his high office and rank to publish a general address to the schoolmasters of england in which he orders them to institute their youth in the most elegant literature and the high eulogium of erasmus on the great cardinal is that he recalled to his country the three learned languages without which all learning is lame a violent struggle however was for some time maintained against these innovations by the generality of those who had been educated in the old system and by the always numerous and powerful host of the enemies and mistrusters of all innovation whether from self-interest or other motives 
Collet, in a letter to Erasmus, relates that one of the prelates of the church, esteemed among the most eminent for his learning and gravity, had in a great public assembly censured him in the severest terms for suffering the Latin poets to be taught in his new seminary, which on that account he styled a house of idolatry. This last expression would almost warrant us in suspecting that the prelate, whose name is not mentioned, was one of those inclined to the new opinions in religion, and at this time the new learning was probably rather distasteful than otherwise to that class of persons zealously patronized as it was by Fox, Woolsey, and others, the heads of the party attached to the ancient faith a few years afterwards a change took place in this respect the reformers in religion became also the chief supporters of the reformation in learning as was fit and natural both from the sameness in the general character and direction of the two movements and also for an especial reason which operated with very powerful effect this was the surpassing importance speedily acquired in the contest between the two religions by the great principle on which the reformers took their stand of the omnipotence of the authority of the scriptures in regard to all the points in debate between them and their opponents not custom or tradition not the decrees of popes or councils not even the latin vulgate translation but the original text of the greek new testament alone necessarily became as soon as this principle was proclaimed the grand ultimate criterion with them for the trial and decision of all doubts and disputes and the armory from which they drew their chief weapons both of defence and of assault at first it is true this view does not appear to have been generally taken either by the one party or the other the first editions of the greek testament that were given to the world were that contained in the complutensian polyglot the magnificent present to literature of cardinal ximenes printed in fifteen fourteen but not published till fifteen twenty two and that of erasmus which appeared in fifteen sixteen both of which may be said to have proceeded from the bosom of the ancient church even from the first however many of the clergy though principally rather from their extreme ignorance and illiteracy than from any fears they entertained of its unsettling people's faith raised a considerable outcry against the new testament of erasmus they seem to have seriously believed that the book was an invention of his own and that he was attempting to establish a new religion but the opposition to the greek scriptures and to greek literature generally assumed a much more decided character when it was seen what use the friends of the new opinions in religion made of both and how commonly an inclination in favour of the said new opinions went along with the cultivation of the new language erasmus for some time attempted to expound the greek grammar of chrysoloris in the public schools at cambridge but his lectures were nearly unattended and a storm of clamour was raised against him on all hands his new testament was actually proscribed by the authorities of the university and a severe fine was denounced against any member who should be detected in having the book in his possession both in england and throughout europe the universities were now generally divided into greeks and trojans the latter class who were those opposed to the new learning usually comprehending all the monks and other most bigoted partisans of the old faith although however the revolt of luther and his followers against the authority of rome and many of the established doctrines in religion thus incidentally aided for a time the study and diffusion of classical scholarship 
neither the subsequent progress of the reformation in england nor its ultimate establishment operated with a favorable effect in the first instance upon the state of the universities or the general interests of learning henry the eighth himself from his natural liveliness of temper and love of novelty as wharton puts it or as perhaps it might be more correctly expressed from mere accident or caprice was favorably disposed to the new studies and his authority and influence were of considerable use in supporting them at first against their numerous and powerful opponents erasmus relates that in fifteen nineteen when one of the university preachers at oxford had harangued with great violence against the study of the scriptures in their original languages henry who happened to be resident at the time at the neighboring royal manor of woodstock and had received an account of the affair from his secretary the learned richard pace and sir thomas more issued an order commanding that the said study of the greek and hebrew scriptures should not only be permitted for the future but made an indispensable branch of the course of academical instruction some time after one of the royal chaplains preaching at court having attacked the new greek learning was after his sermon commanded by the king to maintain his opinions in a solemn disputation with more by whose wit and learning of course he was very speedily vanquished and forced to make a humiliating admission of his errors and ignorance he at last declared that he was now better reconciled to the greek tongue inasmuch as he found that it was derived from the hebrew but although he fell upon his knees and begged pardon for any offence he had given henry dismissed him with a command that he should never again presume to preach before him one of the first causes however although it was only of temporary operation that interrupted the progress of classical learning at the universities has been thought to have been the stir excited throughout christendom by the question of henry's divorce from queen catherine the legality of this violent measure observes wharton being agitated with much deliberation and solemnity wholly engrossed the attention of many able philologists whose genius and acquisitions were destined to a much nobler employment intended to revive for a time the frivolous subtleties of casuistry and theology then the still more eager and widely extended doctrinal discussions to which the progress of the reformation itself gave rise came to operate over a much longer period with a similar effect in this universal storm of polemics the profound investigations of aquinas continues wharton once more triumphed over the graces of the ciceronian urbanity and endless volumes were written on the expediency of auricular confession and the existence of purgatory thus the cause of polite literature was for a while abandoned while the noblest abilities of europe were wasted in theological speculation and absorbed in the abyss of controversy another great temporary check was now also given wharton conceives to the cause of the progress and diffusion of sound learning in england by the dissolution of the monasteries these seminaries he observes though they were in a general view the nurseries of illiterate indolence and undoubtedly deserved to be suppressed under proper restrictions contained invitations and opportunities to studious leisure and literary pursuits on this event therefore a visible revolution and decline in the national state of learning succeeded most of the youth of the kingdom betook themselves to mechanical or other illiberal employments the profession of letters being now supposed to be without support or reward by the abolition of the religious houses many towns and their adjacent villages were utterly deprived of their only means of instruction at the beginning of the reign of elizabeth williams speaker of the house of commons 
complained to her majesty that more than an hundred flourishing schools were destroyed in the demolition of the monasteries and that ignorance had prevailed ever since provincial ignorance at least became universal in consequence of this hasty measure of a rapacious and arbitrary prince what was taught in the monasteries was not always perhaps of the greatest importance but still it served to keep up a certain degree of necessary knowledge the many new grammar schools that arose in different parts of the country after the destruction of the monasteries were partly no doubt called into existence by the vacuum thus created which however they did very little to fill up in so far as the rural population was concerned although they may have sufficed for most of the great towns both the old monastic schools and the new foundations however being considered to a certain extent as charitable institutions were principally attended by the children of persons in humble or at least in common life among the higher classes it seems to have been the general custom for boys as well as girls to be educated at home or under the superintendence of private tutors a notion of the extent and manner of training which youths of rank underwent in their earliest years may be obtained from some letters which have been printed addressed to henry's minister cromwell by the tutor of his son gregory this young man whose capacity is described as rather solid than quick divided his time under different masters among various studies and exercises of which english french writing playing at weapons casting of accounts and pastimes of instruments are particularly enumerated one master is stated to be in the habit of daily hearing him to read somewhat in the english tongue and advertising him of the natural and true kind of pronunciation thereof expounding also and declaring the etymology and native signification of such words as we have borrowed of the latins or frenchmen not even so commonly used in our quotidian speech according to a common practice two other youths probably of inferior station appear to have been educated along with young cromwell and between him and them the account continues there is a perpetual contention strife and conflict and in manner of an honest envy who shall do best not only in the french tongue where mr valence after a wondrously compendious facile prompt and ready way not without painful diligence and laborious industry doth instruct them but also in writing playing at weapons and all other their exercises in the end a confident hope is expressed that whereas the last summer was spent in the service of the wild goddess diana the present shall be consecrated to apollo and the muses to the no small profit of the young man as well as to his father's good contention and pleasure this letter is dated in april another written in september apparently of the same year by which time the boy had begun the study of some new branches especially latin and instrumental music enters into some more minute and curious details of how he spent his time first says the tutor, after he hath heard mass he taketh a lecture of a dialogue of erasmus colloquium called pietas purellis wherein is described a very picture of one that should be virtuously brought up and for cause it is so necessary for him i do not only cause him to read it over but also to practise the precepts of the same and have also translated it into english so that he may confer therein both together whereof as learned men affirm cometh no small profect which translation pleaseth it you to receive by the bringer hereof that ye may judge how much profitable it is to be learned from this it may be inferred that the original latin would have been unintelligible to cromwell and that that able man was above being flattered by having a knowledge of the learned tongues ascribed to him which he did not possess the letter goes on 
after that he exerciseth his hand in writing one or two hours and readeth upon fabian's chronicles as long the residue of the day he doth spend upon the lute and virginal vocal music at least it may be observed if not instrumental was always one of the branches of education taught at the old monastic cathedral and other free schools a circumstance originating no doubt in the connection of those schools with the church in the services of which singing bore so important a part lastly the tutor gives an account of the out-of-door exercises followed by his pupil intellectual instruction however being by no means disregarded even in some of these when he writest as he doth very oft i tell him by the way he says some history of the romans or the greeks which i cause him to rehearse again in a tale for his recreation he useth to hawk and hunt and shoot in his long bow which frameth and succeedeth so well with him that he seemeth to be thereunto given by nature this training so far as it is detailed appears to have been judiciously contrived for laying the foundation of a good and solid education both of the mental and physical faculties the reforming spirit of the early part of the sixteenth century was as always happens in the shape it took in the popular mind much more of a destructive than of a constructive character and even the wisest of the persons in authority by whom the mighty movement was guided and controlled were necessarily to a certain extent under the influence of the same presumptuous temper without a share of which indeed they would not have been fitted to restrain the more impetuous multitude to the extent they did but in its application to the universities as in other cases this spirit of mere demolition and contempt for all that was old and established displayed itself in some things in a very rampant style the scorn in particular with which it treated the whole mass of the ancient philosophy of the schools was of the most sweeping description the famous duns scotus so long the lord of opinion now underwent in full measure the customary fate of deposed sovereigns a royal visitation of the two universities by commissioners of cromwell's appointment took place in fifteen thirty five when injunctions were issued abolishing altogether the reading of the works of the most subtle doctor the tone of triumph in which dr leighton one of the oxford commissioners announces this reform to cromwell is highly characteristic we have said dunce he writes in bocardo and have utterly banished him oxford for ever with all his blind glosses the despised tomes formerly so much reverenced leighton goes on to intimate were now used by any man for the commonest uses he had seen them with his own eyes nailed upon posts in the most degrading situations and the second time we came to new college he proceeds after we had declared your injunctions we found all the great quadrant court full of the leaves of dunce the wind blowing them into every corner and there we found one mr greenfield a gentleman of buckinghamshire gathering up part of the same book leaves as he said therewith to make him sowers or blanchers to keep the deer within his woods thereby to have the better cry with his hounds the scholastic philosophy however which was thus banished from the universities was in fact the whole philosophy mental and physical then taught and its abolition consequently amounted to the ejection for the time of philosophical studies from the academical course altogether the canon law was another of the old studies hitherto of chief importance that was at the same time put down degrees in the canon law were prohibited and in place of the canon lecture a civil lecture that is a lecture on the civil law was appointed to be read in every college hall and inn for a short space the excitement of novelty and the exertions of a few eminent instructors made classical learning popular at oxford and cambridge 
and enabled it in some degree to serve as a substitute for those other abandoned studies to which it ought only to have been introduced as an ally the learned ascham boasts in one of his letters that whereas almost the only classics hitherto known at cambridge had been plautus cicero terence and livy all the chief greek poets orators and historians homer sophocles euripides demosthenes isocrates herodotus thucydides and xenophon were now universally and critically studied this prosperous state of greek scholarship was principally owing to the example and exertions of the two distinguished professors of that language thomas smith and john cheek even the controversy about the proper pronunciation of the language that arose between the latter and bishop gardiner who as wharton observes loved learning but hated novelties contributing its share to excite a general interest about greek literature as well as to throw new light upon the particular subject in dispute but both cheek and smith were soon withdrawn from their academic labours to other fields and with them the spirit of true learning and taste which they had awakened at cambridge seems also to have taken its departure at oxford the case was no better there ascham remarks that a decline of taste in both the classic tongues was decidedly indicated by a preference of lucian plutarch herodian in greek and of seneca gellius and apuleius in latin to the writers of the older and purer eras of ancient eloquence even divinity itself as latimer complains ceased to be studied it would pity a man's heart he says to hear what i hear of the state of cambridge what it is in oxford i cannot tell there be few that study divinity but so many as of necessity must furnish the colleges so true is it that no one branch of learning or science can long continue to flourish amid the general neglect and decay of the other branches that compose along with it the system of human knowledge the first establishment of the reformation under edward the sixth instead of effecting the restoration of learning only contributed to his further discouragement and depression the rapacious courtiers of this young prince as wharton observes were perpetually grasping at the rewards of literature avarice and zeal were at once gratified in robbing the clergy of their revenues and in reducing the church to its primitive apostolical state of purity and poverty the opulent see of winchester was lowered to a bare title its amplest estates were apportioned out to the laity and the bishop a creature of the protector of somerset was contented to receive an inconsiderable annual stipend from the exchequer the bishopric of durham almost equally rich was entirely dissolved a favourite nobleman in the court occupied the deanery and treasurership of a cathedral with some of its best canonries in every one of these sacrilegious robberies the interest of learning also suffered exhibitions and pensions were in the meantime subtracted from the students in the universities ascham in a letter to the marquis of northampton dated fifteen fifty laments the ruin of grammar schools throughout england and predicts the speedy extinction of the universities from this growing calamity at oxford the public schools were neglected by the professors and pupils and allotted to the lowest purposes academical degrees were abrogated as anti-christian reformation was soon turned into fanaticism absurd refinements concerning the inutility of human learning were superadded to the just and rational purgation of christianity from the papal corruptions the spiritual reformers of these enlightened days at a visitation of the last-mentioned university proceeded so far in their ideas of a superior rectitude as totally to strip the public library established by that munificent patron humphrey duke of gloucester of all its books and manuscripts
a very curious account of the state of the university of cambridge in this reign is contained in a sermon preached in fifteen fifty by a thomas lever fellow of st john's college some extracts from which stripe has preserved formerly there were says lever in houses belonging to the university of cambridge two hundred students of divinity many very well learned which be now all clean gone home and many young toward scholars and old fatherly doctors not one of them left one hundred also of another sort that having rich friends or being beneficed men did live of themselves in hostels and inns be either gone away or else fain to creep into colleges and put poor men from bare livings these both be all gone and a small number of poor godly diligent students now remaining only in colleges be not able to tarry and continue their studies for lack of exhibition and health the description which follows of the studies and mode of living of the poorer and more diligent students is very interesting there be divers there which rise daily about four or five of the clock in the morning and from five till six of the clock use common prayer with an exhortation of god's word in a common chapel and from six until ten of the clock use ever either private study or common lectures at ten of the clock they go to dinner whereas they be content with a penny piece of beef among four having a few pottage made of the broth of the same beef with salt and oatmeal and nothing else after this slender diet they be either teaching or learning until five of the clock in the evening when as they have a supper not much better than their dinner immediately after which they go either to reasoning and problems or to some other study until it be nine or ten of the clock and then being without fires are fain to walk or run up and down half an hour to get a heat on their feet when they go to bed latimer in a sermon preached about the same time expresses his belief that there were then ten thousand fewer students in the kingdom than there had been twenty years before in the reign of mary who was herself a learned queen and a considerable benefactress of both universities classical learning had a distinguished patron in cardinal pole who was as illustrious for his literary acquirements as he was for his birth and station in his short tenure of power however he was not able to accomplish much against the adverse circumstances of the time it appears that to him sir thomas pope the founder of trinity college oxford which was endowed in this reign more especially for the cultivation of classical scholarship submitted the statutes of his new institution my lord cardinal's grace says sir thomas in a letter of his which has been preserved has had the overseeing of my statutes he much likes well that i have therein ordered the latin tongue to be read to my scholars but he advises me to order the greek to be more taught there than i have provided this purpose i well like but i fear the times will not bear it now i remember when i was a young scholar at eton the greek tongue was growing apace the study of which is now a late much decayed the fact here stated is especially honourable to pole seeing that by this time the greek language as that of the original text of the new testament to which the reformers made all their appeals had come to be regarded by the generality of romanists as a peculiarly protestant and almost heretical study the return of the old religion however with its persecutions and penal fires did not prove on the whole more favourable to the interests of learning than to any of the other interests of the national happiness and civilization nor did the final establishment of the reformed church nor all the prosperity of the next reign for a long time bring back good letters to the universities a few facts will show their state throughout a great part of that reign in the first place so few persons now received a university education that for many years a large proportion of the clergy of the new church were mere artificers and other illiterate persons some of whom 
while they preached on sundays worked at their trades on weekdays and some of whom could hardly write their names in the year fifteen sixty three we are informed by anthony wood there were only three divines in the university of oxford who were considered capable of preaching the public sermons it has been sometimes alleged that the growing influence of puritanism was one of the chief causes of the continued neglect and depression in which learning was now left but it is a remarkable fact that the three oxford preachers were all puritans as were also many of the most distinguished ornaments of both universities at a later date in fifteen sixty seven so low was still the state of classical literature in the country that when archbishop parker in that year founded three scholarships in cambridge the holders of which were to be the best and ablest scholars elected from the most considerable schools in canton norfolk all the amount of qualification he required in them was that they should be well instructed in the grammar and if it may be it was added such as can make a verse as one instance of the extreme ignorance of the inferior clergy in the latter part of the sixteenth century wharton mentions on the authority of the episcopal register that in the year fifteen seventy horne bishop of winchester enjoined the minor canons of his cathedral to get by memory every week one chapter of st paul's epistles in latin and this formidable task almost beneath the abilities of an ordinary schoolboy was actually repeated by some of them before the bishop dean and prebendaries at a public episcopal visitation of that church the anecdote at least presents the bishops and minor canons of those times in a strange light the accomplished critic we have just quoted is of opinion that the taste for latin composition in the reign of elizabeth had much degenerated from what it was in that of henry the eighth the latinity of ascham's prose he maintains has no eloquence and even buchanan's latin poetry although he admits that his versification and phraseology are splendid and sonorous he will not allow to be marked with the chaste graces and simple ornaments of the augustan age one is surprised he adds to find the learned archbishop grindle in the statutes of a school which he founded and amply endowed in fifteen eighty three recommending such barbarous and degenerate classics as palingenius sedulius and prudentius to be taught in his new foundation these indeed were the classics of a reforming bishop but the well-meaning prelate would have contributed much more to the success of his intended reformation by directing books of better taste and less piety the whole of the sixteenth century however will deserve the epithet of a learned age notwithstanding the state of the schools and universities and of what are called the learned professions if we look either to the names of eminent scholars by which every portion of it is adorned or to the extent to which the study of the learned languages then entered into the education of all persons women as well as men who were considered to be well educated in the earlier part of it besides cranmer ridley tunstall gardiner pole and other churchmen of distinguished acquirements we have richard pace sir john cheek and sir thomas smith colet the founder and lily the first master of st paul's school all already mentioned william grossom another of the first and also one of the very greatest of the english grecians the equally elegant and industrious john leland the father of english antiquities and the chief preserver in his day of the old knowledge that would otherwise have perished as well as one of the most successful cultivators of the new dr thomas lenacre the first english physician and as a scholar scarcely second to any of his country or of his age and the all-accomplished sir thomas more perhaps the happiest genius of his time the one of his profound scholars at all events unless we are to accept his illustrious friend erasmus whose natural genius was the least oppressed by his erudition and whose erudition was the most brightened with wit 
and informed by a living spirit better than that of books of somewhat later celebrity are the names of roger ashen who is more famous however for his english than for his latin writings of dr walter haddon the most ciceronian of english latinists of buchanan perhaps the most of a poet of all the modern writers of latin verse not to mention archbishop parker bishop andrews and other eminent churchmen the number of very great english scholars however in the reign of elizabeth was not so considerable as in that of her father when classical studies were not only cultivated with perhaps a truer appreciation of the highest models but afforded besides almost the only field for intellectual exercise and display still this kind of learning continued to be fashionable and a familiar if not a profound acquaintance with both the latin and the greek languages was diffused to an unusual extent among persons of the highest rank henry the eighth was himself a scholar of considerable pretensions he is said to have as a younger son been educated for the church and to this accident which gave the country its first pedant king it may perhaps have been also indebted for its succession of learned princes which lasted for more than a century henry as it were setting the fashion which it afterwards became a matter of course to follow his son though born to the throne to which he succeeded received a schoolmastering fit for a bishop and so also did both his daughters erasmus has commended the latin letters of mary some of which are preserved as well as others in french and in spanish elizabeth was not only a latin french spanish and italian scholar but was also a proficient in greek in which language her tutor ashen tells us she used even after she came to the throne to read more every day than some prebendaries of the church read of latin in a whole week but this was especially the age of learned ladies and every reader will remember the names of lady jane grey of whose studies in plato the same writer we have just mentioned has drawn so interesting a picture and some of whose latin epistles are still extant especially one to her sister written the night before her death in a greek testament in which she had been reading of mary countess of arundel her daughter-in-law joanna lady lumley and the younger sister of the latter mary duchess of norfolk all of whom were the authoresses of various translations from the greek into latin and english of the two margarets the female luminaries of the household of sir thomas more the friend who became the wife of her learned tutor dr john clement and who is said to have so delighted in and almost worshipped more that she would sometimes commit a fault purely that she might be chid by him such moderation and humanity were there in his anger the other his affectionate and favourite daughter who married his biographer roper and who was accounted the most learned woman of her time and of the four wonderful daughters of sir anthony cook mildred the eldest married to lord burghley whose name has been embalmed by the muse of buchanan and the second the governess of edward the sixth and afterwards the wife of sir nicholas bacon and the mother of the illustrious viscount st alban elizabeth the third the wife first of sir thomas hobby then of lord russell and the youngest catherine who married sir henry killigrew and is celebrated not only for her latin and greek but even for her hebrew erudition it became fashionable in this reign that of elizabeth says wharton to study greek at court the maids of honour indulged their ideas of sentimental affection in the sublime contemplation of plato's phaedo and the queen who understood greek better than the canons of windsor and was certainly a much greater pedant than her successor james i translated isocrates but this passion for the greek language soon ended where it began nor do we find that it improved the national taste or influenced the writings of the age of elizabeth old harrison has a curious and characteristic passage on this learned court this further he observes is not to be 
omitted to the singular commendation of both sorts and sexes of our courtiers here in england that there are very few of them which have not the use and skill of sundry speeches besides an excellent vein of writing before time not regarded he does not however seem to have a more favourable notion of the moral effect of these novel and showy accomplishments than wharton has expressed respecting their influence on the national literature and taste would to god he exclaims the rest of their lives and conversations were correspondent to those gifts for as our common courtiers for the most part are the best learned and endued with excellent gifts so are many of them the worst men when they come abroad that any man shall either hear or read of harrison's words which are surprisingly bold to have been published at the time seem here to be gallantly confined to the men of the court but other contemporary testimonies do not disguise the fact that many of the women were as dissolute as their male associates the honest old painter of the living manners of his time may be thought perhaps to hint at something of the kind in what follows truly it is a rare thing with us now to hear of a courtier which hath but his own language and to say how many gentlewomen and ladies there are that beside sound knowledge of the greek and latin tongues are thereto no less skilful in spanish italian and french or in some one of them it resteth not in me saith i am persuaded that as the noblemen and gentlemen do surmount in this behalf so these come very little or nothing at all behind them for their parts which industry god continue and accomplish that which otherwise is wanting yet he winds up his description with a very laudatory flourish beside these things he proceeds i could in like sort set down the ways and means whereby our ancient ladies of the court do shun and avoid idleness some of them exercising their fingers with the needle others in call work divers in spinning of silk some in continual reading either of the holy scriptures or histories of our own or foreign nations about us and divers in writing volumes of their own or translating of other men's into our english and latin tongue whilst the youngest sort in the meantime apply their lutes citherns pricksong and all kind of music which they use only for recreation's sake when they have leisure and are free from attendance upon the queen's majesty or such as they belong unto many of the elder sort he goes on to celebrate as also skilful in surgery and distillation of waters besides sundry other artificial practices pertaining to the orniture and commendations of their bodies and there are none of them he adds but when they be at home can help to supply the ordinary want of the kitchen with a number of delicate dishes of their own devising at last coming directly to the morals of the court he declares that whereas some great princes courts beyond the seas have been likened unto hell on account of the dissipation and debauchery prevailing in them all such enormities are either utterly expelled out of the court of england or else so qualified by the diligent endeavour of the chief officers of her grace's household that seldom are any of these things apparently seen there without due reprehension and such severe correction as belongeth to those trespasses finally he concludes to avoid idleness and prevent sundry transgressions otherwise likely to be committed and done such order is taken that every office hath either a bible or the book of the acts and monuments of the church of england or both besides some histories and chronicles lying therein for the exercise of such as come into the same whereby the stranger that entereth into the court of england upon the sudden shall rather imagine himself to come into some public school of the universities where many give ear to one that readeth than into a prince's palace if you confer the same with those of other nations this flattering description of the english court is very different from that given by ascham in his schoolmaster who tells us that although it did indeed contain many fair examples for youth to follow 
yet they were like fair marks in the field out of a man's reach too far off to shoot at well while the generality of persons to be found there were the worst of characters some private letters of the time of elizabeth also which have been printed describe the court as a place where there was little godliness and exercise of religion and where all enormities reigned in the highest degree but what it is more important for our present purpose to observe is that the learning which existed in this age however remarkably it may have shown forth in particular instances was by no means generally diffused even among the higher classes while the generality of the lower and many even of the middle classes remained to the end of the period almost wholly uneducated and illiterate it is a question whether the father of shakespeare an alderman of stratford could write his name and probably throughout the community for one that was scholar enough to subscribe his signature there were a dozen who could only make their marks with all the advancement the country had made in many respects it may be doubted if popular education was farther extended at the close of the reign of elizabeth than it was at the commencement of that of her father or her grandfather even the length of time that printing had now been at work and the multiplication of books that must have taken place had probably but very little if at all extended the knowledge and the habit of reading among the mass of the people the generation that grew up immediately after the discovery of the art of printing and that first welcomed the reformation and the translated bible perhaps read more than their grandchildren in of section thirty seven